All right, tonight we'll be in James chapter 2. If you want to turn to James chapter 2. So since, we, since Neil's been preaching in uh, Genesis, right, um, in James chapter 2 we see some references to Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. So I thought this would be a good passage for us to, to go through. So just a little bit about the book of James itself. Um, the author of James is James. Um, but which James, I guess, is the question. Um, and there, there's different, there's like four different choices, but most, most people, it's commonly believed that this is James, the brother of Jesus, right? So uh, James was not a believer before Christ's death, uh, burial, and resurrection. You can see that. We're not going to go through that. But if you look through the New Testament, through the Gospels, we see that J- uh, Jesus' brothers were not Christians, but that Jesus appeared uh, to him and his brothers after the resurrection, and then we see them join the church early on. Right? Jude is a brother of Jesus. He actually opens up his epistle, uh, you know, Jude, the brother of James. Right? So James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. We, we see this in the book of Acts. We see the Jerusalem council. We see James sort of being the, the leader there. Uh, tradition holds that he was stoned in about A.D. 62, uh, right? So the book of James itself was probably written before the Jerusalem Council in A.D. 49 or 50. So it's one of the earlier uh, books that we have from the New Testament. And, and we know this, or we think this, because there's a little distinction made in the book between Judaism and Christianity. You don't really see that distinction. No warning about Judaizers that we see in Paul's epistles. No mention of Gentile believers, right? It's just a lot of Jewish references, a lot of Old Testament references. I think James quotes from like 21 different Old Testament books. So it's a very Jewish sort of focus sort of book. Uh, the theme in James, James wants, to under, James wants his readers to understand that saving faith is more than a mere profession. A saving faith is a living and active faith that proves that it is alive by what it does. The reality of a living faith is demonstrated by its reaction under adversity. That's, that's the general themes that we see in the book of James. So our passage tonight is going to be James 2, 21 through 26. But for context, we're going to read from 14 down to the, through 26. So <clears throat> James 2, uh, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit <clears throat> is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So our outline tonight, there's three points. <clears throat> First, illustration of genuine faith in relation to God. Second, illustration of genuine faith in relation to man. And then 
this teaching is not unique to James. All right, so first point, illustration of true faith in relation to God. This is verses 21 through 24. So James has shown that faith without works is worthless earlier in, in the chapter. Now he shows that saving faith is demonstrated by works. So we see the illustration in verse 21. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? This account is in Genesis 22, 1 through 18. Since James's readers were Jews, Abraham would be a powerful example for them. James phrases the question in a way that expects agreement. Yes, he was justified. Now, James seems to be contradicting Paul when he says that Abraham was justified by works. So let's look. Let's compare Paul. So Romans 4, uh, 2 and 3 says this. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All right, so let's compare that with James. Verse 21 here, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And then in verse 24, uh, three verses down, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. All right, so what's going on here? Uh, are, they, are they contradicting each other? You'll see some liberal theologians talk about James being early and then Paul coming on and, and modifying or having something different. Spoiler alert, they're not conflicting with each other, right? Obviously, even though the Bible has many human authors, it has one divine author. God is not a God of confusion. God never contradicts himself. And there is no contradiction here, and that, that's what we'll see. First off, James and Paul have different audiences and are addressing different problems. So Paul, we don't have time to go through it, but Paul is fighting against a legalism that insisted upon the need for good works to be justified. So Paul insists that no man can ever win justification through his own efforts, but must accept by faith the forgiveness that God offers him in Christ Jesus. And when he's talking about justification, he's talking about the legal declaration by God that you are just. That's what Paul is talking about. James is fighting against an attitude that minimized the effects of saving faith in daily life. So James insists upon the need for works in the lives of those who have been justified by faith. James seems to be correcting a tendency in his readers to go from an extreme emphasis on works as Jews to considering them absolutely worthless as believers. Right, you can understand the early church, a lot of Jewish believers, they had the law, a lot of rigorous, especially like Pharisees, many Pharisees came to, to Christ early on. They were very legalistic. So I, I'm sure all of us know Christians who grew up in very legalistic churches who then reacted to that upbringing by going to the other extreme, right? And, and so James is kind of working against that sort of crowd. People who were, were raised in a very legalistic situation, they've become Christians, and now they're just throwing off everything. So how do we reconcile James and Paul? So first off, we have to understand that the verb translated as justified has two general meanings. One meaning is to acquit, to pronounce and treat as righteous. It would be the opposite of to condemn, right? So that's, that's the legal sort of use of justified. This is the forensic usage, which is used when God declares a person righteous on the basis of Christ's atonement, right? Justified is used this way in Romans uh, 3.24. So I'll read Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right? We all fall sin, or we all sin and fall short, but we are declared as just by God on the basis of Christ's suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. Right? This is that legal declaration by God saying that we are just. 
Right? The other meaning of justified is to vindicate or to show. So justified is used in this way in Romans 3, 4. I'm using Paul in both cases, so we see it's not just with James. Romans 3, 4, Paul says, by no, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now he's quoting a psalm, but the justified in this case, justified in your words is saying, you're shown to be true. It's not being used in the legal forensic sake in this, in this case. It is used in the to vindicate or to show. Your words are shown to be true. And James is using justified in the sense of to vindicate or show in this passage, not in the forensic usage. So that's where the confusion comes from. And James is saying, talking about being justified in this passage, he's not using it in the same sense that Paul's using it when he is using it. Um, in those other passages. Paul's using it in the forensic legal sense, declared righteous. James is saying it's shown to be true, is what James is using that, that justified. And we'll see this more clearly in verse 23. So the specific work that Abraham did was to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. Uh, and obviously this command conflicted with God's promises to Abraham, as we've been seeing as Neil has been preaching through Genesis. Right? God promises to make Abram a great nation in Genesis chapter 12. Right? Abram and Sarai were childless, but God promises Abram that his own son would be the heir in Genesis 15, right? not his servant. Abram has a child through Sarai's maid Hagar in Genesis 16. We just did that a couple weeks ago. Then God renews his covenant with Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and Sarai is to Sarah, and says that Sarah will have the son through which the covenant will be fulfilled. This is what we saw this morning in Genesis chapter 17. Right, Sarah gives birth to Isaac in Genesis 21. Hope that doesn't spoil anything for anyone. <laughs> and then God tells Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis 22. Right, Isaac was not only Abraham's son, but he was the child through which God had promised to fulfill his covenant. And now he is to be offered as a sacrifice in Genesis 22. Isaac cannot be both a sacrifice and the means to fulfill God's promises, can he? Right, and see... But we know that Abraham resolved this paradox by concluding by faith that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. We know this because of Hebrews 11:17 through 19, which says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Right, and we see this in the passage of Genesis 22 in verse 5, when it says, Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Right? He doesn't say, we, I and the boy will go worship and I will come back. He, he's in, implying that both of them are going to come back as well. So by, by faith, Abraham resolved the paradox that God has given by this command in that, well, God must raise him from the dead. Because obviously the... The, the God's promises cannot fail. Therefore, in order to, for this to work out, I have to sacrifice him. God will raise him from the dead, and then he'll obey to still fulfill his promises through Isaac. All right, so that's how we can... All right, so let's go on to the next verse. So James' illustration shows true faith being demonstrated by works. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Right? James didn't mention Abraham's faith in the illustration, but now he refers to it. Faith and works are not equal partners. 
Uh, the verb translated as was active along with means to cooperate with, uh, to work together with, but it doesn't require that they're equal partners. Faith came first. The fact that faith was completed by his works implies that it came first, um, and it does, but it doesn't mean that his faith was defective in some way. Um, faith is completed by works in the same way that a fruit tree is completed by fruit. The fruit works with the fruit tree to show that the fruit or that the tree is genuine. Works work with faith to show that the faith is genuine. So James says that Abraham's offering of Isaac demonstrated what God had declared earlier about Abraham. Right? So verse 23 is the key verse. James is quoting Genesis 15:6. Uh, well, I'll read five and six. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him his righteousness. Right? Genesis 15 occurs probably 20 years before Genesis 22, um, a long time. The, the construction of Genesis 15, 6 implies that Abraham did not merely believe what God had said, but that his faith was centered on God himself. Based on his faith, God declared uh, Abraham as righteous. Justification in the forensic legal sense then occurs in Genesis 15, Decades before offering Isaac as a sacrifice, Paul quotes Genesis 15:6 in Romans 4:3 and uses it to argue that justification is by faith alone and not by works. And James agrees with this. James does not disagree. Uh, by the way, when James says that Scripture was fulfilled, he means that Genesis 15:6 found its ultimate significance and meaning in Abraham's life of obedience. Genesis 15:6 is not a prophecy; it's a declaration. James understood that the faith demonstrated in Genesis 15 must ultimately show itself in the works described in Genesis 22. And that's what James is getting at. False faith results in terror of God, but true faith results in friendship with God. Right? We saw the terror in, in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Right? But, but Abraham demonstrates his faith. The faith that causes God to declare him righteous in Genesis 15, that faith is shown to be true faith in Genesis 22 when Abraham obeys God. So we see the conclusion of the, the first illustration in verse 24 uh, when James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, we have to understand that James is not using justified in the forensic sense of being declared righteous, but in the sense of being vindicated or shown to be true. His faith is shown to be true faith. <clears throat> James is saying that our faith is shown to be true faith by the production of works and not by faith alone. We are declared righteous, obviously, by faith alone. All right, let's go to the second illustration. This is the illustration of true faith in relation to man. This is verses 25 and 26. So the, the second illustration uh, shows how true faith acts towards others. Uh, one commentator says, if it might be objected that Abraham's works were no more than what might be expected from one who had so richly experienced God's grace... The same is certainly not true of Rahab. So the illustration in verse 25, James says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? James again phrases the question in a way that expects agreement. Yes, she was justified by her works. James' point has not changed. We see that by the use of the phrase, in the same way. By using Rahab, James shows that the principle that true faith produces works is universal. Calvin says, he designedly put together two persons so different in their character in order more clearly to show that no one, whatever may have been his or her condition, nation, or class in society, has ever been counted righteous without good works. 
James assumes that the reader is familiar with her story. This is in Joshua 2. Uh, Neil read, read that. We're going to read, I'm going to read verses 8 through 12 again. Uh, it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. The author of Hebrews says this about her in Hebrews 11.31, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab's faith showed itself to be true when she received the message of God. All right, and then we see the, the, James concludes the illustration in verse 26. He says, For the, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works uh, is dead. In both parts of this analogy, when the second member is missing, the result is death. James' point is clear. A faith that does not produce works has as much life as a corpse. It is not the case, however, that faith derives its life from works like the body does from the spirit. That's taken the analogy too far. Uh, James is not addressing works being added to faith here. He is ad addressing the evidence of a living faith. All right, so this brings us to our third point. Uh, is this teaching unique to James? No, this teaching is not unique to James. Uh, we'll see this throughout. So we see in the teachings of Jesus, Matthew 7, verses 16 through 21. Jesus says this, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? So Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. Right? If you claim to be a Christian, but you do not have the fruit of a Christian, Jesus says you're not really a Christian. Right? You, that is, you should be skeptical of that claim. Right? If you are a Christian, you should be producing the good fruit of a Christian. Um, you should be known, the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus says in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Again, bearing fruit proves that you're Christ's disciples. We see this in other places. We're not going to go to them. But the parable of the sower, you know, what was sown on good soil bears fruit. Right? And, uh, we see it um, in Matthew 25. When the Lord comes in his glory, he'll say to his sheep, he has the sheep and the goat, he'll say to his sheep, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink, and so on. Again, Jesus uses the good works that people will do that demonstrates that they are, they are his sheep. Though Those good works identify them as, as his children, as his sheep. All right, so we see this teaching in Paul, um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Obviously, 8 through 9, we see that. That's where we see that um, you know, we are saved through faith. But verse 10 talks about works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, we are saved through faith, and it is the gift of God, but we are saved to do good works. 
Titus 2, 11 through 14, this is what Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right, So God's people should be zealous for good works. We can also see other passages. There's many passages we can see from Paul. Teachings of John, 1 John 1, 6-7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then in 1 John 2, 3-6. Uh, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Right, so I think we, we see it very clearly. This is not, uh, just James is not crazy. He's not a, a heretic. He's consistent with the rest of the word of God that um, we are saved by faith, but not by a faith that, we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone, right? We, we, our, our works do demonstrate that faith. Uh, in conclusion, even Luther, who thought the book of James was a right, strawy epistle, agrees with James. He says in his preface to the epistle to the Romans, Oh, it is a living, quick, mighty thing, this faith, so that it is impossible, but that it should do all good things without intermission. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question could be asked, it does them and is always doing them. He who does not these good works is a man without faith. So ask yourself, is your faith producing good works? Um, if not, you need to examine yourself and ask, is, is my faith really alive? Um, and if it's not, then come to Jesus and receive eternal life. Receive true faith. Um, and Christian, produce good fruit as is fitting of a good tree. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Lord, we do just praise you and just thank you that salvation is by grace alone through faith and that uh, it comes, we thank you, Jesus, that you did it all for us, that it relies our salvation is not dependent on us in any measure at all, that you are the one that, that came to this earth, that you lived uh, a perfect life, obeying God's moral law perfectly, and then you went to the cross and you bore God's wrath in our place. And you took our punishment that we deserve. And we do have eternal life and forgiveness of sins through you. And we just praise and just thank you for that. We do pray that we would be zealous uh, for good works. We pray that we would have good fruit. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to love your ways, to, to love your law, to, to live our lives in a way that would bring credit to your name. I pray that people would notice the difference in us, that, that they would recognize uh, our morality and our good works and that they would glorify you because of them, and that uh, you would uh, be glorified throughout all of the nations. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.